Hello, and welcome to the Building Educator Capacity Podcast, where we strive to improve student learning by expanding the capacity of our diverse school districts. I'm Phil Anderson, today's host, joined by co-host Mitchell Lilly. How are you doing, Mitchell? Hey, great. Thanks, Phil. Great. Today is the first part in a two-part series on how educational games and virtual reality are making an impact on student learning. Digital leadership and learning consultant Frank Devereaux meets with three experts on why educational gaming is important and the key elements that makes it worth our students' time. Our guests today include Andrea Trudeau, Library Information Specialist in the Deerfield School District 109 in Illinois, David Antignoli, Assistant Professor of Game Design in Columbia College Chicago's Interactive Arts and Media Department, and John Spike, Coordinator of the Instructional Technology Integration Services in the College of Education at UW-Whitewater, and Chief Executive Officer at GameStorm EDU. Each of our guests bring their unique perspectives on how instructional technology and games are upgrading the learning experience. Well, thanks everyone for being here. I'm so excited for today. We have this awesome lineup for you here at CISA 2. We have this podcast that's going to be about educational gaming and virtual reality and the impact that has on student learning. And I have three wonderful guests I'd like to introduce. Andrea Trudeau from Deerfield, Illinois. We have David Antonioli, and then we have John Spike from University of Whitewater, Wisconsin. David is from Columbia College in Chicago. And so I just thought I'd let you guys quickly introduce yourselves and talk about your programs and what you do at your organizations. So I'm Andrea Trudeau. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm in my 25th year in public education as a middle school educator just north of Chicago in Deerfield District 109. I am currently in my eighth year as what I like to call a no-shush librarian. So I work in a really unconventional, human-centered, amazing library space. I also am currently a PhD candidate at Northern Illinois University in instructional technology and doing my research in virtual reality, and how it affects the empathic responses of adolescent students. That is my kind of library right there. (laughs) David, you want to go next? Sure, yeah. Uh, I'm David Antignoli. I'm an assistant professor of game design at Columbia College Chicago. Uh, Before that, my background was in the professional, like, entertainment game industry. I worked on a, a handful of of like console games and then after that i i spent some some time in in independent game development kind of segued into some instructional design roles with microsoft and a company called gp strategies teaching mainly you know creating either game-based learning stuff or tutorials about using unity and some of microsoft's products for game development and then uh, I also run a studio called Night City that is a community-based game development shop that also, I'm, I'm, my goal is to create some exhibitions and uh, learning materials for the local Chicago game development scene. All right. Well, thanks much. And John, you want to go uh, finish up the tr- trifecta here? Sure, sure. I'm John Spike. Uh, As you kind of mentioned in the beginning, I work at the University of Wisconsin-Whitewater in the College of Education. I coordinate the instructional tech and integration, so helping 
faculty, students, staff use technology in what they do to enhance instruction. I teach courses in video games and learning, digital tools aimed at librarians, public and K-12, teach an intro to ed class as well. And then uh, kind of before that, I was a high school English teacher and tech integrator in the K-12 scene. And then I also am a game designer in my spare time. I currently am about to release my first commercial game called Game Stormers. It's a kind of board card game where you actually uh, win the game by designing the best game uh, as you play. So that's a, just a little bit about me. And yeah, I should also mention too, I'm a, a PhD candidate at NIU along with Andrea as well. Uh, I'm also looking into VR for my dissertation, but collaboration and creation uh, at the higher ed level with teacher education. Uh, in terms of, you know, how that impacts uh, student experiences versus kind of traditional video calling. Well, I told you we had a huge lineup here, and I'm excited to get started on some of these questions we're going to tackle. And and I should have introduced myself. I'm Frank Devereaux, and I work for CISA2 as an ed tech uh, integration specialist. And I was in the classroom for 25 years, and I remember, I'm, a, I'm, I'm kind of old school, I remember Oregon Trail, I remember using games with my students to try and encourage that collaboration and encourage a lot of different problem solving and, and critical thinking. So I'm really excited about some of these topics we're going to talk about today. And so I'm just going to launch right in. And I'm going to ask you guys to think about this first question, which is why do you think that educational gaming and virtual reality, that experiential learning is important for learners in our schools? Let's, for someone, maybe our audience that may not be tied to schools directly, let, let's kind of key them in on that. Yeah, I can start things off. Uh, yeah, I think one of the big pieces with both VR and, you know, educational games is that it's it's such an active experience. Uh, it involves trial and error. It's often authentic. You're situated in, in hopefully an authentic space. It encourages failure. Uh, games are very good at, at allowing us to fail and then allowing us to, uh, to pick ourselves back up. They're often collaborative opportunities where we can work with others in a scenario to try to find a common solution. So I think those are all just goals that we have in education that that games and VR facilitate. And I know uh, that my fellow panelists will will add a ton onto that. So I'll, I'll leave it at that and let them pick up from there. So, John, that's a good start. I want to add that, um, you know, I can't help but go back to some of the theory and look at, you know, Kolb's experiential learning cycle. And that's where he says that we basically learn by doing. And so when we give our students a hands-on experience, it goes through this sort of cycle where we're presented with something new. We get an opportunity to reflect and see how this new information fits into our schemata. And then we end up forming new ideas. So it's this process of sort of learning, relearning, and even unlearning. Um, and it's a continuous cycle. And what I love about this idea of sort of experiential learning, educational gaming, VR, is that it really increases student engagement. You have kids that are feeling much more excited and motivated. And as a result, they feel a much stronger connection to the content. And the re research is showing that uh, they're able to demonstrate their learning more when they feel motivated and connected in these ways. And what I like is that something like VR really takes something that is otherwise inaccessible and makes it accessible. So you can take something that is an unsafe situation or an unrealistic experience and make it a reality. I like to think of myself as like a Mrs. Frizzle. I can take them on the magic school bus. So 
you know, you have kids traveling in time, going inside the human body, inhabiting, becoming someone else. And it's unlike any other medium that students are encountering. So it has, you know, major impact on their learning experience. Yeah, I mean, these have been great answers so far. And I'm going to kind of piggyback on them a little bit. So absolutely like active learning and not just being a passive user or a passive participant, but being an active participant. And I think, you know, not only does this help people learn, but it also maybe teaches about agency or helps helps learners exercise agency a little more and understand that they can you know, have an impact on their environment. I think that's pretty important, especially to teach younger kids. And then, you know, yeah, the the engagement and motivation. I think, you know, we all understand, you know, at this point, the, the game industry has kind of gotten dangerously good at figuring this out. <laughs> and so hopefully we can leverage that for education and, and forces of good and not just uh, making money and, and, uh, and convincing people to do stuff they might not normally want to. And, and I, I think the, the other thing I would add to this conversation is there's an element of like technology or technological literacy and design literacy that I think bring games and, and digital, you know, digital games and VR into the classroom helps with, you know, I think for, for like our or at least my own age demographic, it's like I remember early, early access to computers in school when when they weren't really common at home. And that was really important. At this point, my career is is based around using a computer. And I think, you know, becoming familiar with the the design language of whatever the current, you know, vogue of technology and digital digital content is, uh, is is super important. And so right now, everybody, you know, many, many students have access to, you know, Chromebooks or phones or tablets, but the VR dimension of it, I think is something that is really helpful to give students access to in at school, because not this is not something that's super common so far um, at home. And it has its whole own, its own unique kind of design language that we need to kind of familiarize ourselves with. I will, I will have to kind of go back to that engagement. I, I agree. I, I think, and I'm by no means a, a virtual reality expert, but for the last four years in my last school, we had a, a set and I had a room set up for that and I would bring classes down there and the amount of engagement and the amount of curiosity that surrounded that immersive experience was amazing. And I found myself learning alongside them, you know, and I wanted to know more. And I was actually learning about faraway lands that I didn't know about. I was doing things creatively with art that I had never done. And it was just, it just drew me in and it drew my students. They, they talked about it all the time. And, and going back to that learning by failing that John, you had mentioned uh, playing those games and, and, and when they fail, I remember middle schoolers just getting frustrated at that whole situation, but it, it drove them to want to learn the strategies, to learn the concepts more and come back again and, and, and do better the next time. So I, I totally love those responses and those answers. 
Now I'm going to go on to question number two, and because all of you ha have at some point had your students or you yourself have designed or piloted different games with learners. So what are some of those essential elements you consider that you think about when you are designing a game or piloting a, uh, an already developed game with learners? What are those essential elements? Andrea, you want to start us off? Sure. So obviously as a, you know, a librarian and an educator, I'm more focused on the piloting piece. And so I have piloted quite a few apps and games over the years. And I think it's always important to think about the why. Um, it gets, it's very easy to get caught up in sort of the exciting new tech and the bells and whistles, but we have to really consider why are we doing this? What is going to be the educational value? How does it um, enhance the work that we're doing? You know, I just think about like the SAMR model. So we want to make sure we're not just uh, replacing something that could already be done in a different way. And when I pilot things, I always like to start small. So when I brought virtual reality and augmented reality into my library, it was a very small pilot. I found a teacher who was you know, who trusted me, who was willing to like allow me to come in and create a little station with a handful of Google Cardboards that we had and just kind of see how it works. And so when we started small, we then decided to kind of enhance it and roll out more. And from that point, we had to involve uh, more of our key stakeholders. So, you know, whenever we're you're going to use a tool, I want to make sure that I'm talking with our tech team to make sure we have the infrastructure speak with the teachers to kind of look at it from these different angles. I even want to, you know, talk to the students, like, what do you think? How does this help you? Interviewing them to make sure it's uh, worth their time. And then we also have to consider sort of the long-term support needs. And then cost is always going to be a big one for school districts as well. Yeah, so I can uh, jump in and answer this a little from a development standpoint. And I think, you know, the, the, the first step is always to consider what the learning objectives would be when you're trying to develop a new new learning materials and you know keeping the learning objectives central in your mind as you start to explore you know design ideas and i think the other thing that that's really important to me as a designer is you know maintaining the learner's perspectives or being empathetic to you know what what it would be like to encounter this stuff from their shoes and you know there's kind of a history i think this is going away now but i think there's at least a, when i was growing up there's a history of negative associations with educational games and so like not just ignoring that but investigating like okay why why that people thought these games were um, not fun or didn't like the fact that they had to participate in them. I guess the other, there's some, a few other things I try to keep in mind, like not just putting portrayals of the of the content or the theme in in whatever kind of random game I might add. Like let's add, let's create tic-tac-toe with dinosaur background. And now you're learning about dinosaurs. Like that is, in my opinion, kind of like the old way of doing this kind of work and instead i think it's best to think about really like you know recentering on that learning by doing and how we can actually engage users in the the things that they're trying that we're trying to teach and last but not least i think it's really important to just play a lot of games so 
normally there's i mean at this point in 2022 there's games about almost anything that use just about any game mechanic you can come up with and understanding how other folks have communicated complicated information to to players even if it's from the entertainment industry i mean there's so much super smart design that has been done already that we just don't really need to reinvent um and that can save a lot of of time and uh effort when you can just kind of stand on the shoulders of the really smart stuff that's already been figured out so so that's that's my advice yeah, just uh, great, great thoughts from Andrea and David on this one. And yeah, kind of aligned with what David was talking about. Obviously, want to make sure that when you're piloting or designing games, it, it aligns with those objectives. And I'd also throw in there, I'm always looking for, does the game present meaningful choices, meaningful skill development? You know, I don't want students to be, I call it kind of on rails where you know, every student would take the same path. I like games where students are challenged maybe morally or strategically to make a decision and students might make different decisions in the game is always interesting to me. Uh, I like games that ask students to engage in new identities. So the game is, it's challenging to think like an archeologist or think like a scientist or think like a mathematician uh, and, and inviting them into kind of trying out these new roles in the game world. I think too, uh, I think both we're, we're getting at this. The game also sh should be fun. You know, as, as David mentioned, we have some kind of games where, you know, it's like, hey, get through this math problem and then you get to do something fun. You get to blast something afterwards, uh, you know, but you have to suffer through it. But why isn't the, the math like ingrained into like this interesting challenge or obstacle in your way, right? Uh, why isn't the math part of that, that, that essential task that you're doing? And then finally, one other thing I, I think that I early on in my career didn't do a good job of, I didn't think sometimes when I was doing a game or situ, you know, scenario or uh, simulation, I didn't ask myself, you know, am I pushing the envelope with, am I asking the students to experience a trauma that might be triggering to them? You know, I used a game where they spent 30 days in the shoes of an impoverished parent and you know, young me did not consider, you know, being a middle-class person that I hadn't gone through these things and a student who had, or a student who had witnessed it, another friend or relative going through it, that might be traumatic. And so also just checking my own, you know, perspectives and saying, is this going to be something that might be trauma for a student in terms of a game or a simulation? Uh, there are sometimes you need to push students out of their comfort zone, but you don't want it to be something that's going to be just, uh, you know, triggering for them as well. Thanks everyone that yeah I agree with the the why and you know figuring that out for me was always my first step but I also realized whenever I would introduce it to fellow colleagues that it was one of their first questions right like why are we doing this or why would we want to do this and 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 I love the fact that you guys all mentioned about it, it you know how how does it enhance the learning how how are we getting these students to think differently and critically and, and, and take on different roles, all of that. And then, yeah, those, those choices, giving those students those choice to their pathways are always gonna be more engaging than just kind of everyone following this, the same kind of path. So thank you for those responses. And we'll move on to question number three. You know, I remember when you guys mentioned this a little bit ago that there wasn't a whole lot of, kind of engagement there wasn't a lot of creativity in these games they were just kind of shifting uh, a pre-made concept and just slapping on some learning on there or 
like like John, you said, there was a math game and you had to do the math first and then you get to blast a little bit. So how have educational games and VR changed in recent years? Is there been a major shift about, about these games that our audience should know about? Yeah, again, I kind of answer this from a development perspective, but I think absolutely we live in a much better world of uh educational games than than when you know we were growing up it's um i think there's a lot of reasons for this i think one big one is that it, it's a lot there's a lot better development tools that are a lot more accessible these days like things like unreal and unity that just weren't you know it was a lot trickier to figure out how to even make a game previously and that's only getting better you know development is only getting more user-friendly and more powerful and the what you're able to create for a similar budget is you know really changing over time and the other thing i i think that's a big factor in this is that creators and educators are just becoming increasingly more familiar with the landscape of you know game design and digital design and not only understanding the kind of tenets of good design, but also being more comfortable and willing to embrace the idea of using games in the classroom or creating an educational game. The other thing I would mention is that we have, you know, like more, more connectivity and just better technology in general. So like things like uh, online, you know, internet access and games that use the internet are uh, like a big part of what's possible today and then and yeah like technology like vr is is huge for the idea of something like experiential learning and that vr has has existed in the past but it's it's like become something that can exist on a consumer level in a, in a much more user-friendly way than than in any previous era so i think that's a, a you know pretty big paradigm shift in terms of educational game development and training game development yeah i i'll, I'll try to what i'm going to try to do is is sit at the intersection of these two experts in in game design and and virtual reality and education and try to i'll, I'll touch a little bit on the game game games and education and vr and then set up andrea to take it away and and flesh out the vr but one thing that that comes to mind with the educational games and how they've changed is i feel like in years past when i was growing up they were much more focused on kind of those lower level you know kind of we we call them blooms you know kind of verbs that you'd use in teaching they might be identifying remembering maybe applying some concepts and now educational games are getting a lot better at, at doing higher order thinking like okay, analyze this, evaluate it, create something, you know, come up with an original solution for this. And so I, I've been really excited about games, you know, pushing learners and, and, and pushing learners to solve something and solve it in different ways. Uh, I think that's been a really unique uh, kind of, uh, you know, advancement. And I also think what's great is commercial games have been so fantastic that educators have been able to leverage commercial games that weren't designed to be educational, but use them in educational ways because they're designed so well and in such high fidelity and, and so vast and, and, and with so much potential that we, we've also wrapped those in and use them educationally. From how VR's changed, uh, it, this is kind of selfish from my research point of view, but I like how VR is much more collaborative 
uh, it's much more creation-based itself. And my research focuses on how can we get people together in a creation space? And, and is that a, a better learning experience in terms of designing and, and, and feeling a sense of presence than, than doing other means that we do currently? So I think that's one thing that comes to mind with VR, but there's, there's so much that goes into VR. And that's where I'll hand it off to Andrea to, to expand on that. I appreciate the segue. I, and I also really appreciate just hearing this from David's angle because obviously I'm not involved with uh, the creation of these tools. So it's really interesting to hear from that perspective and, and what's being considered. From more of a consumer perspective, as a consumer of um, virtual reality and as a researcher in vir virtual reality, I've been really intrigued by how there's been a shift in VR. You know, initially a lot of the educational VR was really focused on science and engineering. So being presented with a puzzle, building something to get through a goal or create something. And I've been really intrigued by the cinematic VR that's being put out there. Um, Chris Milk's TED Talk, where he talked about VR being an empathy machine, really drew me in. That was in 2015. And so immediately, a lot of VR researchers were kind of looking at the impact of cinematic VR on adult users. And they found that it was having a profound impact on empathy, both in short-term and long-term. So when I started to look at the research for you know, children, especially adolescents, because that's who I'm working with, there really wasn't much out there. It's all just really been focused on you know, using this in, in science and STEAM-related classes. So I've been really intrigued with there's a concept in librarianship called Mirrors, Windows, and Sliding Glass Doors by Rudine Sims Bishop, and that was in 1990. And that's the idea that when we enter a library, the books should have uh, mirrors where we can find ourselves in the books and feel validated. We also can find windows where we can look outside of ourselves into someone else's world, which then opens our eyes and, and validates that perspective. But to me, the magic is the sliding glass door and being able to actually go into this world and truly experience it. And while I believe books have that power, I think VR, can it's, it's like mirrors, windows, and sliding glass doors 2.0 because now we're standing in this space, we're immersed in this story, we can become someone else or stand there with someone else and break the fourth wall, as they call it, where you're sort of face-to-face -face with these characters. There might be some interactivity elements as well, kind of like a choose-your-own-adventure, which is a kid of the 80s I love. But I love this idea of being like enveloped in a story. And I think there is going to be some profound impact as more cinematic VR is created because students can learn about, you know, a refugee experience, or I've had students that have viewed the film Traveling While Black, and they learn what it's like to be a Black American in the time of the Green Book and even modern day. So to have these different perspectives, I think is going to be incredibly profound. And so that's been sort of the focus of my work. And um, I'm excited to see kind of where VR goes with kind of harnessing the power of story. Okay, now I'm getting really excited about these topics. And I'm definitely going to have to look up that TED Talk uh, and watch that. I, I, I want to touch on what um, we said about commercial games. And as a classroom teacher, I, I liked when my colleagues and I would use, utilize those like Minecraft or something like that and try and use that as leverage to kind of get those kids to focus on their creativity, uh, maybe even collaboration. And, and so that to me was an easy way, but then 
like David said, there's so many more, so much more access to powerful tools that a, a, an everyday teacher like myself that could actually tinker a little bit and, and, and kind of come up with a, a solution of my own using some of these easier to use and easier to access tools. But I think the biggest power in my mind is the fact that uh, we're having more and more teachers like yourselves getting their PhDs and they're already education-based and they're already figuring out ways to make these even more accessible for, for the everyday uh, classroom. So thank you for sharing about that. We're gonna move on to the next question. This one's a little bit uh, tougher. More and more, we are hearing the reverberations of equity throughout the landscape of education. And I imagine this comes across your minds frequently. And Andrea, you touched upon this uh, about the, the windows and the doors and the sliding doors through that lens. How do you feel VR and educational games create more equitable opportunities for our learners? And we'll start with John. Yeah, yeah, and I'm 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 very excited to hear you know my fellow panelists, you know Andrea and David, talk a little bit about this from their perspectives. Uh, from the VR perspective, you know, as you mentioned, Andrea, you know, noted that this is going to be a great perspective taking, and I'll let her since that is her PhD focus. I'll let her touch on that, but I think just the idea of from a just a logistics standpoint, virtual reality is going to allow us to experience worlds, engage in simulations, and, and do so in a safe environments and reduce cost of travel, reduce cost of implementing, uh, you know, a physical simulation. It has a lot of opportunities there. Uh, of course, when we think about educational games, too, in terms of equity, uh, games are, are taking leaps forward. They, of course, have ways to go, but a lot of commercial and educational games are taking big leaps forward of helping us understanding uh, the systemic issues that are out there and exploring them in new identities as well. Uh, I talked about, you know, when I'm looking for a good educational game, I'm interested in, in students trying on a new identity or exploring an identity or a perspective that maybe they haven't taken on before. And so I think both VR and educational games do a great job of helping us explore these new identities. Uh, and again, I'm excited for Andrea and David to, to expand on that. So I will turn it over to them with uh, bated breath. Thank you, John. Um, so yeah, like I indicated in my, my last response, I think it's really about Regine Sims Bishop's mirrors, windows, and sliding glass doors. That is such a, a key part of the work that we do in schools today. And I feel it's our responsibility as educators to provide these diverse perspectives through all the different media that we consume um, with students, because it does allow for there to be a seat at the table. We're validating these perspectives. We're opening students' eyes to other you know, different perspectives and hopefully helping them really gain much deeper understanding and empathy. My initial research, I'm doing dissertation by um, publication. So I conducted my first study in the spring and this is currently unpublished data, but I'll share it with you. Hopefully we'll be getting into a journal article soon. I had students view a film called The Displaced in a VR format, and then I compared to students watching it, you know, 2D 360 on a Chromebook. And we measured both uh, cognitive empathy, which is the idea that you can put yourself into someone else's shoes. And then there's affective empathy with an A, where you can actually feel what someone else is, you know, is feeling. 
And, you know, no surprise, initial subscale scores for girls were higher. That's pretty much what we, I would expect given the literature and previous research. But then we looked at our, you know, scales after. So I had them complete this tool called the Adolescent Measure of um, Empathy and Sympathy, which teases out the two types of empathy and sympathy. And in the uh, post-test subscales, we had quite an increase. Generally speaking, our cognitive empathy went up by seven, about seven and a half percent. And then our effective empathy went up 10.75%. But if I break it down by gender, the boys had a huge increase, especially in their effective empathy. So their increase in empathy went up about 22.6%. I had a student who's on the autism spectrum whose scores doubled. So there's something happening when people are in these headsets and they're having these experiences. I think some of it might be you're having this personal experience. You're not, you're not looking, no one's looking at your reactions. It's this space. You know, I think a lot of times adolescent students are always cognizant of the people around them and how they're reacting. And so to be able to really attend to this story, in the case of the displaced, it's child refugees telling their stories. I think it allowed them to truly process it and really think about it and reflect upon it. And it's just super interesting to me to see this massive jump in empathy. And I, I hope this becomes a change agent and it can help people better understand others around the world. Wow, I feel I feel so privileged to get access to that information, Andrea. But I, I think I just wanted to jump in before David responds and I forget. I, I think it's kind of you you touched upon something that this immersive experience helps students focus. It can it can really help them get out of that classroom environment or get away from those distractions or that away from that need to be an adolescent and get gain responses from my peers and just really target what the teacher is trying to get across. So that was really powerful. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, the, these have been great answers. And I'm not sure if I can add a ton more here. I think the thing with digital is it's it's removing scarcity, right? And I think John John touched on this. So we don't really have to worry about as much uh, you know, travel and distribution and manufacturing costs with like digital content. And once you have one instance of it, you can just quickly copy it for as many people as you want. Now I think there's some countermeasures being explored for various reasons, like, you know, this, um, things like using blockchain to kind of create scarcity and trying to figure out how to make money off this stuff that like, is a little counterintuitive to this perk of how easily we can share digital content. And then there's also, you know, the, the issues of the digital divide and, and you know, it's great that those of us who have a VR headset or, or an internet connection can can access all this great stuff, but there's still groups out there that don't have access to this type of technology. So I guess it's it's not a complete panacea, but uh, you know, I I think it's a great you know, like a step in a, in the right direction. And the other thing I guess I was thinking about listening to our panelists is how like presence in VR is a big factor of, of, you know, the immersion. And I think especially during the pandemic, when everyone was um, forcibly isolated, 
the idea of using that type of presence to feel more connected you know there's there's things like mozilla hubs where you could actually try to you know create a virtual classroom or allow your your students to meet and congregate virtually in whatever kind of environment that you know makes sense i think that's a really powerful possibility as well john i'm going to put you on the spot because i remember having a conversation with you at the the playmake learn conference and you had mentioned something about how long when you were really looking at that equity lens and making sure your characters in your game were representing the student populations that you wanted to play the game that you you didn't you know can you kind of can you kind of elaborate on that that process thinking that you know kind of you and your illustrators and, and went through on that oh yeah absolutely frank uh, yeah, so for for the commercial game that that uh, we're releasing later this year, Game Stormers, uh, we did not want to have you know we wanted the game to celebrate kind of the rich diversity of the world, and so we we wanted you know players to be able to choose from this very diverse cast, but we didn't want to do it just you know we would design an Asian American character and just, you know, have our artists make their presumption of what that all entailed. We tried to talk to or have people design the characters who, who came from those backgrounds, or we, we sought out people who did this. So what's, what's really exciting is I worked with a member of the Ho-Chunk Nation right here in Wisconsin to design a character who fit into kind of our, our kind of steampunk futuristic world while still celebrating kind of these cultural touchstones of the Ho-Chunk Nation. And so we, we tried to do that with each and every of our characters that we designed is, is really have them be designed by someone, you know, who identified with that, that cultural, that ethnic heritage, or we sought out those folks to consult during and not design the character and then say, hey, what, what should we have done, but rather as the character developed, do that. I also do want to touch on, uh, David mentioned the, the sense of presence, and that's actually one measurement in my VR study uh, that I'm conducting. And, and early on, and we, you know, keep in mind that, you know, we don't have huge numbers. We're running the study again this fall. Uh, early on, it showed a higher sense of, of social presence in a VR world, like, a, you know, David mentioned, like something similar to Mozilla Hubs compared to a video call, like a Zoom or a, a Google Meet or things like that. So again, early, early numbers, but yeah, it did show higher senses of presence uh, with uh, other people. So that's kind of an exciting development. Thanks for elaborating on that. And I do, I do think that it is so important that students see themselves in these virtual reality experiences and what better way to give them that immersive, you know, because sometimes they're in a school that where they maybe no one else looks like, like them or comes from the background they come from. And then here we have this ability to transport them into a, a world that they feel more comfortable in. So thanks. Thank you for, you know, talking about that. Thank you to Frank and all our guests for the discussion so far. As someone who grew up in an age where school teachers and leadership just brushed off games as just for fun and have no educational value, it gives me personal joy that not only can we now embrace technology and games in the classroom, but we understand how we can have these games bring about educational value. It can now be an active learning experience. Absolutely. We don't want games and VR for the sake of them being new or novel. However, game design has progressed to such a point that they can develop educational games that are fun and help expose students to new knowledge, ideas, and cultures. 
Be sure to check out the second part of this podcast, where the discussion continues regarding the impact on curriculum and other considerations for classroom experiences. Links to our relevant resources are in the podcast description. Thank you for listening to this episode of Building Educator Capacity. To be the first to know when our next episode lands, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks to Ms. Liz Elliott, band teacher from Whitewater Middle School, for providing the music for this podcast. We'll see you at the next one.